Hey everybody, welcome back to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagne. How are you feeling today, Mark? I feel good. I feel like the baby in Baby's Day Out. How are you feeling? Whoa, Baby's Day Out. I, I feel like a spaghetti dinner inside of a briefcase. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what, what's going on with Baby's Day Out? I don't even, I don't remember. Have you, uh, have you seen that movie? I don't think so. Do you remember it? So... He, you know, if you feel like the baby in Baby's Day Out, you feel like you're curious but immune to danger. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> so, like that's a movie from, it's from 1994. It's from, uh, written by John Hughes. So, of course, mm. you know, set in Chicago. But it's basically, there's a wealthy baby that's kidnapped by three guys for ransom money. But then, okay. you know, the baby just destroys and humiliates them through random events and by escape escaping and wandering different places so like a reverse a home like, alone but with a baby yeah <laughs> there's a lot of lowbrow physical comedy and you know groin injuries and stuff like that i think there's a gorilla in it somewhere oh nice um, I, I remember one scene where the baby's like being smuggled in one of the guy's coats and then he like grabs the guy's lighter and sets him on fire <laughs> And like the other guys have to put out the fire by stomping on its crotch. This like sounds like a movie that like you couldn't like get around it in 2019. Like the pitch is like, <laughs> there's a kidnapped baby. <laughs> and you take the baby um, and stuff him in your coat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did a little bit of research on this. Uh, I wanted to find out more about it. I guess Vern Troyer was the baby's stunt double in this movie. What? Interesting little and then, uh, yeah, because the baby's, like, crawling on skyscraper ledges and stuff. But uh, I saw something else that was, like, blew my mind. So this movie, 1994, it was, like, a it was a huge commercial failure in the States. But <laughs> Sounds like it. It was, <laughs> it was wildly, wildly popular in, like, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. Oh, get those, get that uh, international market sales. Pre-sales. Yeah, so this, this is from the, the Wikipedia page. Um, in India, it was played at the largest theater in Calcutta for over a year. Recalling a trip <laughs> to Calcutta, film, film critic Roger Ebert said, I asked if Star Wars had been their most successful American film. No, I was told. It was Baby's Day Out. <laughs> it, was, it was remade twice, first in 1995 under the title Sisindri, and then in 1999 under the title James Bond. What? Now I have to like I I I, ha, I have a former colleague from Mumbai and I think now he's in New Delhi. I have to ask him about Baby's Day Out. <laughs> Shout out to my boy yeah, Adlan. <laughs> find out the story behind that. I sh- I will. I'll ask him for you. I'll I'll be like, dude, have you seen a movie called Baby's Day Out? <laughs> nice. Yeah, let me know about that, dude. That's insane. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Yeah. So I think the plan for this week is you were going to try the game that I came up with last week, like uh, Styles from Nowhere. Yeah. So last week, Styles from Nowhere, and I crushed it. I'm, I'm going to put my brag in yeah. now. But like I, I think we're going to I think we're going to discover that Styles from Nowhere might be like a little bit easier than it would seem. It seems like it would oh, be really see. hard. <laughs> You're setting me up. Yeah, I'm setting you up for some failure. Um, how many books do you have? Okay, so right next to me, right next to me, I have five books, and what I'm gonna do, the okay. rules of the game are, I open it at random. Yeah. I open it at yeah. random and read us. Yeah. What do open I do? Open up to a random page. Yeah. Open up to a random page. Read a little bit. I gotta try and guess the author. Maybe the book. You know, randomness is key here. Might get lucky. You might land on a character name or plot point that's familiar to me. Right. You know, the, the point of the game is really talking about the writing styles and what give. Like uh, each author, see what gives them their distinct voice and see if I can, you know, right. decipher it. And I have chosen books that I Nervous. know. I've chosen books that I know Mark has read. So or like at least, you know, something about them. So, OK. All right. So if you can hear, Let's I got, try my, it. got my book right in front of me. Got a nice paperback <laughs> going. And uh, I'm going to go I'm going to go random page. And I'm just my eyes are closed right now. And I'm putting my finger down on a paragraph. OK. Give me the page number, too. I don't right. know why, but it might All right. help. So it might help. So 291. Okay. So I think you're going to get lucky. Uh, 
The latter fact was very significant in Raskolnikov's eyes. He saw that Porfiry Petrovich had not been embarrassed just before either, but that he, Raskolnikov, had perhaps fallen into a trap, that there must be something, some motive here unknown to him, that perhaps everything was in readiness and in another moment would break upon him. Ah, Petrovich. So, Russian author, is this... Uh, is this Dostoevsky? This is Dostoevsky, yes. Okay. See, this is what I'm saying. Like, like Styles okay, from okay. Nowhere is like not I got, I got always lucky. impossible. You did get lucky with some <laughs> is, of those names. Is it, um, I'm having trouble. I, I can't remember the character's names. Is it, uh, Brothers Karamazov? It is not. It is Crime and Punishment. Okay. Which okay. Raskolnikov yeah, is, is the main character of uh, of Crime and Punishment. So That was lost on that. <laughs> that. That was revealed by names, but, you know, there was like a little bit of uh, Dostoevsky in there. The readiness in, the, in another moment, everything would break upon him. Like, that sounds like something that uh, yeah. Dostoevsky would be worrying about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, building up this, you know, giant weaving story. Yeah. All right, There's you ready? Some kind of so, some crime going on, some stuff. Yeah. In my book, you're one for one. You got the author. Uh, so okay. I think. I mean, I think it's enough if you guess one detail. That gives you a point. <laughs> yeah. Of a random thing. So, okay. So here's book number two. Can you hear this in the microphone? Yep. Okay. Authentic. So I'm gonna give you page number, <laughs> and I'm gonna give you. I uh, put my finger down. So page seventy six. Okay. When you're done laughing, perhaps we can get back on with the meeting. And if them little ones climb back on the twister again, they'll only fall off in a sec. So they might as well sit on the ground and listen. No, you have doctors for everything, even the inside of your mind. You don't really mean that we got to be frightened all the time of nothing. Life, said Piggy expansively, is scientific. That's what it is. In a year or two, when the war's over, they'll be traveling to Mars and back. I know there isn't no beast. Not with claws and all that, I mean, but I know there isn't no fear either. I got really lucky on that one then. That's yeah. Lord of the Flies, right? Yeah, you got real lucky. Piggy, Lord of the Flies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like if you get a character name, then then but I didn't I mean I wanted to I almost wanted to skip over Piggy's name, but then I was like, that's like not fair. <laughs> so uh William Golding. Yes, William Golding, Lord of the Flies, okay. which I know is one of your favorite Slam books. Dunk. So Slam Dunk. Slam Dunk, so yeah. As long as Piggy is in there. <laughs> Okay, book number three. You ready for book number three? Okay. So yeah. we are on page 183. And here we go. He nodded and glanced at me, crushed out the cigarette, from which he had taken no more than two or three puffs, and went back to his ironing. He seemed to have become interested in me, as if he wanted to tell me something, but decided in the end to say nothing. And I, meanwhile, had things I wanted to ask him. How had Kamiko looked when she came for her cleaning? What had she been carrying? But I was confused and very thirsty. What I most wanted was to sit down somewhere and have a cold drink. That was the only way I would ever be able to think about anything again, I felt. Hmm. Is that cold drink a Sapporo? Ah, I think you're on to something. <laughs> uh, I gotta say that's Murakami. It is Murakami. Now let's see if you can get the book. I don't know the book, though. Yeah. Kamiko. Oh, is, is that it, it? Yeah, I'd say it's either Wind Up Bird or Norwegian Wood. I can't remember. Yeah, it's Wind Up Bird. Well, I I chose it. I know you've okay, nice. I know you've read Wind Up Bird, so that's why I chose one. See, th dude, I'm telling you, Styles from Nowhere. I think we're discovering something about literature right now that like it actually is like. I mean, we kind of we know a little. We've gone a little bit biased because we know the books that each other has read. Like nothing is going to be completely out of left field, but. So you're three for three. Okay. Next time we're going to do books that we know we haven't read. Well, books that neither of us have read. Just well, go that, to the library. It's going to be like impossible. <laughs> be like, <laughs> maybe. You could try it. At least maybe we can okay. do something like you get a point if you guess the country or something. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I got a book right here. I'm on page. Yeah, what language is this book written? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, this book is written in English. I'm on a page 101. And let's see. No, wait, I'm going to switch it up. I'm on page 61. 
All right, here we go. Uh, tonight, there were big lights over by the schoolhouse where the tent was. It was the first night, and that meant that almost everyone was going to be there. After a year without one, the people in the valley were hungry for a revival. Cars were moving down Main Street bumper to bumper all the way to the foot of it. I could see the red tail lights turning into the schoolyard and stopping and going out. Groups of town people were walking down the streets that led to the tent, stopping to pick up other groups standing under street lights and getting larger and larger at every corner the closer they got to the foot of Maine. The people from out of the hills were there. You could tell by all the trucks covered with hardened clay that they were trying to park along the streets. I thought of how many of those trucks were being driven by women, with most of the men overseas. They drove them pretty well, too, and it made me think of how people can sometimes do things you never would have thought they could. That's a tougher uh, one. I'm stumped, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I can think of the time period uh <laughs> yeah i know i was Damn. like this is like some sexy shit that i'm reading <laughs> is that uh oh man i don't know i i gotta just uh i'm gonna just gonna say steinbeck yeah that, that's a tough one it's not it's not steinbeck but it's interesting the crossover because that was kind of like sort of like steinbeck with the people coming out of the hills and stuff like that yeah but this is uh this is mr john kennedy tool at the ripe age of 16 the neon oh, bible the neon bible okay yes so john kennedy tool author of confederacy of dunces only wrote one other book the neon bible when he was 16 yeah didn't he win uh it was like he won a prize for that right it was like a high school yeah he won like some sort of like really weird yeah he entered it into a literary contest when he was 16 and then the whole story of his literary career is that it's all posthumous yeah. His mom was like obsessed with getting him published, which good for her. That's a great story though. Yeah. It is a good again. story. It's a short one. Yeah. Um, but also I feel like there was like a hint of something in the plot of the book there. Cause he talked about um, women doing things that they're, that you don't think that they're, that they could do or something. Isn't that whole book about like he crushes on a girl and then she ends up making the move before he does or something like that. Uh, it's something like I just remember the family dynamic about yeah. that. I don't remember. Or maybe she like moves away in the that book is really depressing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely uh something about a train, I remember. <laughs> All right. Uh, so in my next I'm gonna do my next one. This is my this is the one? final one. Okay. Three for four. Um We had blindness. We had blindness with caviar. There were tartines. We had sweetbreads and mushroom cream sauce. He said it was all on him. He said he was treating. There was roast artichoke topped with a sort of sly aioli, mutton stuffed with foie gras, double chocolate rum cake, seven kinds of cheese, a kiwi glace, and brandy and snifters. You needed two hands to swirl. That coke addled. Uh, yeah, that coke-addled fag in his Morris Mini. The prostitute, the prosthetic film scholar. Fans do not begin to keep it all in the great convexity. It creeps back in. What goes around, it comes back around. This, your nation refuses to learn. It will keep creeping back in. You cannot give away your filth and prevent all creepage. No. Filth by its very nature, it is a thing that is creeping always back. Me, I can remember when your Charles was cafe with cream. Look at it. Now look at it. It is the Blue River. You have a river outside you that is Robin Eggs Blue. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, oh, I don't know, man. I there just was heard... there was a line that I stumbled over that might be the biggest clue, but I stumbled over it because it has inappropriate language. The co that coke-addled fag in his Morris Mini. <sighs> I am not sure about that. I heard great convexity and I started thinking of the great concavity. Um, I, I hmm. <laughs> damn, I, I don't know. I got to pass. Think of I'll give you a hint. Medically. Even though, even though okay. you've, even though you've forfeited your point, I'll give you a hint. Just okay. think of a book that goes in every different direction. Uh, like there is no logic. I mean, no, there is logic. <laughs> Never mind. Is that some Joyce or some? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't he would know. he <laughs> would be complimented if you thought so. That's from Infinite Jest. 
Okay. Okay. That's what I meant. Oh shit. I was on it then. I said great concavity. Yeah. But um, you didn't say it. Damn. Yeah. Overthink it. Overthink it. I also purposely I purposely didn't do like I was holding infinite jests in my hand and I thought he'll get it right away if I say page nine hundred and forty one. Yeah. <laughs> like something like that. I was wondering why you didn't say the page name. All right. So we're st- jury's still out on um styles from nowhere but yeah <laughs> we gotta do it we gotta do like an advanced level of styles from nowhere but still yeah, it's interesting one word i think you've kind of found something where it's like it's really interesting that you can tell an author's style maybe just from a paragraph yeah you know what i mean like we've pretty accurate like of the you know handful of authors that we might have picked from we kind of zero in right away. Like when you hear like, oh, this guy's talking about being thirsty. It's like Murakami. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, how does that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, some recurring themes. Uh, so anyway, um, I think I'm going yeah, first. Good. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going first this week. Um, probably this week will be one of the first like i think this week we'll have an analysis i'd first like to say that the book that i'm doing i enjoy the book and i enjoy the author but you're probably going to hear more negative things from me than you've ever heard on this podcast before (laughs) so like i have sort of i have like a chip on my shoulder about it but i also have like a sort of contentious relationship with the author who i'm reading who i'm reading this week and um I'll just dive right into it. So the f- um, the novel that I'm doing this week is from 1992, and it is All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy. Hey, we got a first here. I've read this. Oh, my God. Okay, so you've read All the Pretty Horses. <laughs> that, I mean, yeah. the, I, honestly, I'm shocked that this hasn't come up earlier. But uh, So tell me, like, give me a quick snapshot of what you remember of the book before I before I dive in. I liked it. I remember it's about um, some kids, and the the biggest thing that sticks out in my in my head is that one kind of uh, that kid with the shitty grin the whole t- the whole time, and he's just he wants to ah I, 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 shit. <laughs> you might I be talking, liking liking this one character. You might be talking like, about uh, their friend that they meet like near the border, Blevins. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and him. he's and he's afraid of lightning. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Blevins, he's a good character. There's a lot of good characters. like all characters in this book are pretty good. They're also pretty um what's interesting about this book and it's it's in a few of the reviews that I'm going to bring up along the way is that it's definitely a turning point for like uh Cormac McCarthy to be like way more conventional. Like if you've read Blood Meridian, which came out, I think in like 1985, yeah, Blood Meridian came out in 85. It's much more sort of like disconnected and maybe like, you know, the chapters kind of like this book, All the Pretty Horses was a turning point where people are like, oh, this guy like wrote a story about like kids who go across the border into Mexico and it's like linear, like it goes forward and like there's a love interest and like it's a little bit like as far as Cormac McCarthy could be called sappy, it's like probably one of his like sappier books or especially up to the point, this point in his career. So he came out with this book in 1992 and people were like, whoa, you wrote like a book that has like more normal elements than something like Blood Meridian or uh, his uh, first book, Sutri, which was in 1979. Um, so, okay. I, I think I, this is all coming back to me. I must've read this eight years ago or at least, but, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wrong in thinking that all the pretty horses was the, cause this is part of like a trilogy, right? The cross, it is. Yeah. Not, it's the first of the border trilogy, but I thought blood Meridian was the third in that. And I must be way off. No. Yeah. Blood, blood Meridian, <laughs> blood Meridian stands by itself. And, okay. um, what are the three then? It's the crossing. It's something all else, the right? pretty horses, the crossing and, um, cities of the plain. That's what it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let me just first say that I really enjoyed all the, pre- I've read blood Meridian and this is the second, um, book that I've read from Cormac McCarthy. Um, 
And like I said, you're going to hear probably like the most negative things I've ever said about an author on this podcast thus to, so far, because I have a little bit of chip on my shoulder about Cormac McCarthy. I can't, I have no basis for it. Like I really like kind of can't go anywhere with it. But the more I went down the rabbit hole of why I don't exactly like him, I feel like I did too much research. You know how we've talked before about like, maybe it's like you shouldn't research an author too much, like into their life or whatever. Yes. So like, I think the real impetus for why I kind he kind of rubs me the wrong way is that it's the whole punctuation thing. Do you know like his oh, okay. punctu- like his thing where he doesn't? I know punctuate? that he's got, yeah, he's got a he's got his own kind of methodology for that. So um, he does this so thing this... where he doesn't use quotations or indentations for dialogue. So in a way, <laughs> you find a lot like you'll find a lot of a lot of reviews from early in his career when he was writing more complex stuff like Sutri and Blood Meridian, where people are kind of like. I think he came out of the gate and kind of shocked reviewers and like different critics by being like, oh, he has this style and like the dialogue is very fluid and like blah, blah, blah. But the reality is like something like All the Pretty Horses, it's not a challenging book to read. The only reason why it's challenging is because he decided to not punctuate, which is like annoying. (laughs) So like the only like there are some things that you kind of are like. There's no question whether it's dialogue or not. It's basically just your eye gets lost for a little bit and you're like, what the fuck am I reading? And then you kind of have to like adjust for the first 10 10 pages or so. So, Yeah, I guess I don't think of him that way. So whatever you reveal about him now is going to, you know, form. (laughs) Ruin everything. Um, Yeah, yeah. Because I've read read, um, The Road. I've read Mm -hmm. No Country for Old Men. Yeah, those are both pretty good. Um, yeah, all the pretty horses. I, I really remember liking this book a lot. So, yeah, it, he like it. the first thing that I'll say is that he's a great writer. So I'm in some ways kind of like poking fun at a living legend kind of thing. But yeah. <laughs> so Carl McCarthy, he was born in 1933. He's currently age 85, and he's expected to come out with a new book like pretty soon. The last when the road came, the road came out in 2006. So it's been quite a while. Um, he is known, he's known, he's written 10 novels and Wikipedia says spanning the Southern Gothic, Western and post-apocalyptic genres. So I would consider him mostly a Southern Gothic and Western author. Um, the, the reason why I picked up all the pretty horses, um, to, to read something in his style is because I recently went on a trip out into, uh, Death Valley, the desert (laughs) outside of outside of los angeles and uh, i knew i was going to be completely disconnected from society reality and just like i was camping and i went like off-roading with a friend of mine so it was like the perfect setting for like this american west you know sparseness which is definitely what Corrick mccarthy is known for so um that that's kind of where my headspace was in, in selecting this book um, I don't want to go too much into his biography because through my criticisms of his writing, I'll probably get into that a little bit, but he was originally born in Rhode Island. Then his family moved to Tennessee when he was really young. I think that the American landscape obviously had a massive effect on him. Probably his most kind of effective writing is either. I find a lot of his most soulful moments to be ones where he kind of reveals he never talks about anything internal like at all like he never talks about like thoughts or feelings or anything like that but he does bring usually men into situations where they reveal that they're wondering about life and death and god and stuff like that um so some of the most powerful moments are usually like descriptors of of landscapes and stuff like that. And, you know, he was the perfect choice to be reading out in the desert or in the American West. Um, To give a quick summary, we already talked about it a little bit, but all the pretty horses, I'll read the plot summary quickly from Wikipedia, but the novel tells a story. My my summary, my summary wasn't good. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Some kid, I I think I said, uh, (laughs) there's some kids. There's some kids. And and there was one uh, kid that was cooler than the other one. (laughs) Yeah, there's three kids and one kid is really cool. 
So the novel tells the story of John Grady Cole. He's a 16-year-old who grew up on his grandfather's ranch in San Angelo, Texas. He was raised for a significant part of his youth, perhaps 15 or 16 years, by a family of Mexican origin who worked on the ranch. And he's a native speaker of Spanish and English. Uh, the story begins after his grandfather dies and he learns that his family ranch is going to be sold. Basically, like it's shaking out that his grandfather died, his father is soon to die, and his I couldn't even really figure out, probably because of the lack of punctuation, if it was his stepmother or his mother. But basically, the the family farm is getting sold, and he's kind of like had enough of life, so he decides to cross the border into Mexico, which I actually think is a really interesting, in a weird way, almost biographical choice. Like, first of all, let me say that if Cormac McCarthy any ever hears any of this, he's probably going to like hunt me down and kick my ass because like, <laughs> you know, whatever I'm, I'm sometimes projecting and putting assumptions on him and stuff like that. But I think it's interesting that the plot of this book is like a young man goes from uh, like relative security in Texas. And then he crosses the border into Mexico with his friend uh, Lacey Rollins and they travel southward into Mexico where they hope to find work as cowboys. So they're basically looking for these giant ranches in Mexico where maybe they'll get some work. And um, John Grady Cole, the main character, is a talented horse trainer. So he knows that he has some sort of value in that world, but they're basically roughing it. I think an interesting theme here to Cormac McCarthy's life is that if you read any biographical information about him, he basically um, lives a life of self-imposed poverty. So he's like a famous author. At this point, he's a famous author, but early in his career and also throughout like his publishing history, um, there's even like interviews with he's had three different wives and there's like interviews with his wives where it's like he was a New York Times bestselling author, but we were living in a barn and like bathing like in the in the river, like when we had children. So like he would like refuse to really? like, yeah, he would he like refuses to live like any sort of kind of life which i think is kind of interesting because in a weird way I, I don't think that he actually like comes from poverty like his father was like a lawyer in tennessee and stuff like that and there's some interesting themes in all the pretty horses like these two kids are riding horses into mexico but there's like trucks on the nearby highway they like talk about it it's in the 40s yeah. um so there's like a theme of sort of self-imposed um you know, and they're going into a world that's like really scary. Like they get end up thrown in prison and they steal horses and they get fucking stabbed and stuff like that. So like it's a really intense world. Um, and through my research into Cormac McCarthy's style, basically trying to, you know, figure out all that, like the stylistic themes that he has of, you know, no punctuation or anything like that. I figured out a new literary term that I can bring to the podcast. Uh on Wikipedia, they said he kind of is sometimes um, ascribed this style called, and I'm going to not be able to pronounce this, polysyndeton, <laughs> which means, which is a Greek um, root for meaning many and syndeton, which means bound together with many. And it's basically a stylistic theme that's the deliberate insertion of conjunctions into a sentence for the quote purpose of slowing up the rhythm of the prose or to produce an impressively solemn note. So I would definitely say, even if Cormac McCarthy doesn't agree with any of the literary themes that are projected onto him, that um, that's definitely the case. I think that his writing is really great. I think he's a great writer and I'm absorbed easily into it, but that he does this thing, like instead of commas, he does and 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 like all these things like over yeah. and over and uh i'm gonna read you a few examples here um i have an example queued up in my book by the way my my edition of all the pretty horses is just a really i think i bought it for i knew the reputation of cormac mccarthy but i also have the border trilogy all bound into one book as the everyman's library and it's just one of those super nice hardcovers that has you know like the tassel for the bookmark and stuff like that um cool so I'm going to read you two kind of chunks that are one after the other, and I'll tell you which one I think is good, and I'll tell you which one I think is really stupid. Does that sound good? <laughs> okay. We'll get some uh, self-imposed po self-imposed poverty of punctuation. 
Yes, okay, so here we go, just in one second. Um, okay, so these first few sentences I think are good. Looking over the country with those sunken eyes as if the world out there had been altered or made suspect by what he'd seen of it elsewhere, as if he might never see it again, or worse, did see it right at last. So he has those like really great like sentences where it's just like, wow, like that's like a cool way of thinking. He's basically describing an old man looking out into the countryside. And I know that went by quickly, but um, it's just really, you know, as if he might never see it right again or worse, did see it right at last. So it's sort of like this. He has this spare way of writing that makes you have to accept the sort of brutality of the environment. That's another thing in Cormac McCarthy, like things will just happen. Like the main character wakes up and all of a sudden he's being arrested for something he didn't do. And the way that his writing also goes along with the plot of just being like, fuck, I have to accept this inevitable reality, which is kind of what it's <laughs> like, like being in extreme poverty or maybe like out in like the, you know, the, like the times when there was no technology and no communication. It's just like, this is the way it is. And um, sometimes it's hard to accept because his characters are really good. So immediately following those few sentences um, is, this is uh, John Grady Cole's father watching him ride a horse. And I think that this paragraph is really stupid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Okay, so the boy who rode on slightly before him sat a horse not only as if he'd been born to it, which he was, but as if he were as if were he begot by malice or mischance into some queer land where horses never were, he would have found them anyway. He would have known that there was something missing for the world to be right, or he right in it, and would have set forth to wander wherever it was needed for as long as it took until he came upon one, and he would have known that that was what he saw and it would have been. Like, I don't know what that means. It me like, basically, it means that he is, was born, like, if he was born into a world without horses, he would have felt like an emptiness that wasn't there, even if horses didn't exist. But sometimes I think that Cormac's writing style really works for him. And sometimes I think it makes him sound really dumb. Here's another the one. Path getting there was yeah. pretty awkward yeah it's very awkward sometimes and i and the other thing that i hate about it too is that and i'm gonna go into this a little bit towards the end of my review but a lot of writers like lap it up and i think i mean uh, reviewers and critics kind of like lap it up because of his, his mystique and i'm like really get pissed at them but anyway <laughs> it's like jazz you know <laughs> maybe uh, All you of know, them. i don't know about that but okay, so here's here's from page six of my edition of All the Pretty Horses. This is something else I think is rather silly. Um, what he loved in horses was what he loved in men, the blood and the heat of the blood that ran them. All his reverence and all his fondness and all the leanings of his life were for the ardent hearted and they would always be so and never be otherwise. Okay, so I think that that second sentence is pretty cool. Like, everything that he likes in life is for the ardent hearted and that would always be so but it makes no sense to say what he loved in horses was what he loved in men the blood and the heat of the blood that ran them to me that is just imagery of cormac mccarthy wanting to use the word blood yeah <laughs> and like you know later on in this book john grady cole falls in love with the rancher's daughter alejandra how come he never talks about how he's obsessed with the blood running through her veins that's all he's ever interested in <laughs> like it's just something that kind of like pisses me off when i'm reading him because there's so much good stuff in there but then there's also so much like what are you talking about like <laughs> you just want to get like this gothic imagery into there by being like blood and death and dust and like you know whatever he describes like a hundred different sunsets as like the color of blood and uh you know whatever but going on to more positive stuff about the book, um, I really did love this book a lot. I know I'm making fun of it, and it's because I have a chip on my shoulder about Cormac McCarthy for some reason. Some of his punctuation just rubs me the wrong way. Um, something that I would suggest any fan of Cormac McCarthy and this book, All the Pretty Horses, to definitely watch a movie called The Rider, which is um, from 2017. But I'm actually going to check that date. Um I, this has been in my uh, Amazon queue for like a year. Okay, so now that it's been in your free. now that you now that you can uh, you know 
now that I'm giving you the suggestion, you know how many movies I've seen. I think that The Rider is probably one of the best films I've ever seen. I heard it was really good. Including like all of history and everything, you know, (laughs) that I've seen through film history and stuff like The Rider. First of all, when I was reading all the pretty horses, the main character from The Rider, that movie, it was to me was John Grady Cole. And The Rider is a movie about a, a, a young man who trains horses. Um, in South Dakota, but all the pretty horses is also about a young man who trains horses. So there was like a really good connection there. And I felt like I was really, um, absorbed easily into the world because I had some knowledge from, from that, um, from that thing. So I, you know, I know I'm sounding harsh about Cormac McCarthy, but at the same time, I also breeze through all the pretty horses. I think it's like a 300 page book and I, and I breeze through it in like a week. So that definitely says something. I can't be too annoyed by him if I'm picking it up all the time. Um, (laughs) One of the great moments in the book, I think is um, he gives some of the best lines to uh, the rancher's daughter that he falls in love with Alejandra. He gives some really great lines to, um, her she has like basically like a long speech that i'd like to read a little bit from uh, a quick paragraph from here here's a good example of how how his spare dialogue can be so um the this older woman is basically giving him a lecture about what she believes about people uh if one were to be a person of value that value could not be a condition subject to the hazards of fortune it had to be a quality that could not change no matter what Long before morning, I knew that I was seeking to discover was a thing I'd always known, that all courage was a form of constancy, that it was always himself that the coward abandoned first, and after this, all other betrayals came easily. So I think that he is just so incredibly talented with delivering those kind of like stark realities. Like that is such a crazy, awesome thing to say, that the coward abandons himself first and all other betrayals came come easily. Like yeah. that is awesome. That's amazing I, writing. I, I think that's why, like, I don't know. I really like the the uh, movie No Country for Old Men. There's a lot of good dialogue in that, and some of it just comes right from the book. Yeah. Um, but for the last part of my review, um, you know, I think that Cormac McCarthy is amazing and whatever. But I'm also <laughs> I'm gonna go swing back into the negative a little <laughs> bit because I found a few New York Times, um, I found a New York Times review of All the Pretty Horses from 1992, which I agree with some things that I highlighted in it and I strongly disagree with other things. For one part, first of all, people really compare him to Faulkner a lot, which I think is just complete bullshit. Like, I think, I don't know why, but somehow he's a great American author who's a living great American author and then people just put Faulkner on top of that. you know, McCarthy's not in the same league as Faulkner. That's completely ridiculous. Like, they have completely different writing styles. He's maybe even closer to Hemingway, but definitely not as good as Hemingway either. So, um, I, I think it's kind of bullshit. I'm, it's kind of mean to compare apples to oranges and say one author is better than another, but I don't know if I'd put him in the same league as Faulkner. But it comes up a lot. Um, here's a paragraph that once I read to you, Mark, you'll know that I was just seething with anger for Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> so right, this was this is from a New York Times article, um, a, an interview with Cormac McCarthy from 1992. He also rarely gives interviews, just like any good mysterious author. Um, so McCarthy's style owes much to Faulkner's in its its recondite vocabulary, punctuation, pretentious rhetoric, use of dialect, and concrete sense of the world, a debt McCarthy doesn't dispute. Quote, the ugly fact is books are made out of books, he says. The novel depends for its life on the novels that have been written. His list of those whom he would call good writers include Melville, Dostoevsky, and Faulkner, but precludes anyone who doesn't deal with issues of life and death. Proust and Henry James don't make the cut. Quote, I don't understand them, he says. To me, that's not literature. A lot of writers who are considered good, I consider strange. Um, I love Proust and fuck you. <laughs> like, what are you even talking about? Like, it, like, as much as people think that Proust has no meaning behind some of his sentences, he has a hell of a lot more meaning than, you know the boy who was born in the world without the horse and the horse was good and the horse was him was not in him in the, the bet the bet so you know shove it up your ass Cormac McCarthy I know you read it listen to a lot of podcasts and um and 
there and then the my closing stuff will, will, for all the pretty horses. There was a good thing in in the New York Times from 1992 as well. Uh, a review by Madison Smart Bell, and uh, there was some stuff in here. Like I said, I think that the critics and the interviewers of our time kind of are really fooled by his bullshit. But um, there, there's two kind of parts in here, and and I'll and I'll switch them around so that I end on a positive. But the first one is. Cormac MacArthur must be acknowledged as a talent equal to William Faulkner, but whatever he may owe to Faulkner's style, his, stum- his substance could not be more different. Faulkner's work is all about human history and all takes place in mental spaces, while in Mr. McCarthy's work, human thought and activity seem almost completely inconsequential when projected on the vast alien landscapes where they occur. That's a really good sentence, other than the fact that he's not equal to Faulkner. And then... Um, Another person, another thing that this uh, Madison Smart Bell pointed out, which I will say as a positive note to the book, which I thought was really interesting, was that uh, he, he pointed out, or he or she, I don't know if it's he or she, but the novel opens and closes with eerie images of American Indians suggest, that suggest our civilization may be swallowed up as completely as theirs. And I didn't real I didn't put those two things together until I read this review and that's completely true like he he at first sees like a bunch of uh, Native Americans in Texas when he's crossing the border and then he sees them again uh, he never really interacts with any Native Americans he does interact I think with some Native um, Mexicans which are also Native Americans but um, in like in Texas he doesn't interact with them but they're always sort of almost creepily watching um and i think it i think that this reviewer is right on the money to say that he's suggesting that our civilization uh may be swallowed up as completely as the native americans so there's a lot of spare truths to accept in all the pretty horses there's a lot of things that i have to accept about cormac mccarthy like that i don't want him to be a good writer but that he is a ridiculously (laughs) good writer um so you know it, it's just all about those things where you just it, it's it's stark it's depressing it's sometimes positive sometimes negative but you just have to accept it because it's, it's pretty damn good and uh and that's all the pretty horses nice yeah i need to revisit that yeah i want i always wanted to read the whole trilogy and then i think i just stopped there so yeah i i do intend to read the whole trilogy um but it might take me some time because when you have that when you have that big you know um, hardcover, it's kind of hard to lug around. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nice. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm up. Yes, it's your turn. <laughs> uh, okay. So the book that I brought this week is it's sort of built off of a popular question. And, you know, it's one of those questions that I would say, like, everyone has thought about before, you know, when you're just bullshitting. But, you know, the specific rules behind it are always different depending on who brings it up and what company you're with and everything. You know what I mean? It's, like, just one of those things, like, what would you do if you won the lottery? Or yeah. what super what superpower would you choose to have? Or if you could go back in time, where would you go? You know, one of those hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of novels are built off this sort of thing, more or less like a what-if scenario. Um And the time travel one is a big one. You know, it's been done many, many times. But like I said, like the rules of the hypothetical are always different. Um, So my book for this episode poses the specific question. What would you do if you had a second chance at being 18, knowing everything you know now and retaining all of your memories of what would then become the future? Hmm. Like what if you had a third or a fourth or a fifth chance? What would you do? Uh, So I want you to think about this and we'll return to it, you know, once I discuss more about the book and you see what you hear about what Jeff Winston did. Okay. So I'm talking about the 1986 fantasy novel Replay by Ken Grimwood. Okay. I've never heard of it. So uh, it won the 1988 World Fantasy Award. It was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll start off just by saying it was a really entertaining read. One of those like, you know, page turners. Uh, I think it's, how big is this? 300 pages. Uh, you know, a huge change of pace though, from like the Virginia Wolf I was reading last week, but you know, it's very entertaining. Yeah. You got it. You got a little escape just like me last yeah. week with the uh, Rama. Yeah. So I read this super quick, but, um, but anyway, so the premise of the book 
is 43-year-old Jeff Winston. He has a heart attack at work, and he dies. But in the very next instant, he's back at his college dorm room in 1963, Mm -hmm. right inside his 18-year-old body, but, you know, with all the memories he developed up to and including his death in 1988. Okay. So, you know, there's the initial panic and, you know, the what the hell is going on kind of moment. But eventually, you know, he accepts it. He sees, you know, the great opportunity he's been given for no discernible reason. And uh, it's kind of like how Robinson Crusoe is basically like, or though I see it as basically a how-to guide for inventory management and survival. <laughs> but, you know, replay this book, at least the first part of it, it's essentially a how-to guide for managing the situation and, you know, accumulating as much wealth as possible if you happen to be able to predict the future, you know, taking advantage of your opportunity. Mm, so there's some back-to-the-future elements here. Yeah. So the 18-year-old Jeff, once he figures out, okay, I'm here, he throws together as much money as he can scrounge up. Like he sells his car. He, uh, you know, gets all his savings, his, his everything, every dollar penny to his name. And he puts it all on the horse that he knew was going to win the Kentucky Derby in 1963. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, uh, makes a ton of money, but he also know, he also knew who was going to win the world series. He knew what companies would be emerging in the coming years. And this guy's got a good memory. Yeah. <laughs> basically he builds an empire. Um, you know, in the first part of the book, that's what he does. What's, so now, the, what's the villain's name in Back to the Future? Skip or whatever? This guy is basically Skip. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, now let's return to that thought experiment. Like, let's say you go back in time to what would that be? For us, it would be like 2007. You're 18 again. Okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe you have a couple hundo to your name. Maybe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what what do you do? What what do you do then to make the most money? Like knowing what you know. Like oh, don't worry man. about the thing about me is that <laughs> I, I like not I'm not gonna know anything. Was that <laughs> was that before or after the Red Sox? Like th- didn't the Red Sox like have a really long losing streak and then they won the World Series when we were that young? was 2004. Yeah. Yeah. So don't don't worry about ethical concerns or responsibilities or anything like that. Like just for this, you're trying to get as rich as possible in 2007. What do you do? As rich as possible in 2007. Yes. Uh, when did the iPhone come out? <laughs> what's Apple? I have a list here. What's Apple stock at? In January, Steve Jobs introduces the first iPhone, January 2007, and they were released in June. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then, okay. So if I go back to when I'm 18 and if it's the moment that I'm 18, then it would be January, 2007. So he introduces the iPhone. Obviously people are already probably like investing in Apple, but I would, you know, get in there or, you know what? That's kind of stupid too, though, because that's like the end of Forrest Gump and that that was still true then. So that's like, that's like, that was when you had to get in on it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did a bunch of re- I did some research. This is this was a pretty terrible time market-wise, you know, it's on the eve of the subprime mortgage crisis. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can invest in Netflix or Amazon. Oh, okay, so Netflix exists but isn't yeah. as big. I think I don't know. I think they might have been around. That was when they were probably a mail mailing service or something. You mm-hmm. could uh what else you could do? You could invest in the UFC. That kind of blew up. Yeah. around that time you would you kind of would just end up looking like an investing ge- like you like the guy does in the book you would just sell your car and then be like for some reason i'm just gonna buy netflix stock and your family yeah. would be like you're <laughs> insane but he had all the quick ones though you know mm-hmm. um yeah i i feel like you have to have some knowledge of betting or, or something like i would i would be fortunate enough to know that you know that year was when the the patriots new england patriots went undefeated in the regular season but then they lost to the giants okay the super bowl so you could, uh, I could, you know, make that a uh, parlay, you know, that that exact scenario. Mm-hmm. Probably make a killing. I even knew the score of the game, so uh, that would have been good for me. Uh, <laughs> and I was, I was trying to think of this like, you know, thought experiment. I think of the a sad really truth funny... about me is that I'd still end up probably just as poor. I, I haven't been yeah. paying attention, <laughs> you know, enough to the world. <laughs> um. I think, yeah, yeah, he was in a much more fortunate time in 1963, but I was thinking a really funny and like roundabout way to try and make money would be to like coin or trademark certain words like, you know, hashtag 
yeah. selfie or like <laughs> dumpster fire photo bomb <laughs> you just like yeah you create like the first memes and stuff like that yeah <laughs> that would be a really strange way i don't know that, that might work i think people would probably just choose different words if they weren't allowed to use them or whatever um but anyway so jeff he lives he relives his life this way oh wait what where when did bitcoin start Oh, you yeah, you could get in on Bitcoin. Yeah, I would buy like a ton of Bitcoins. <laughs> and then you know you would have to know exactly when to sell it though. You remember when that peaked? Yeah, well, yeah, but that would I would have to <laughs> wait for a while, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um So anyway, yeah, Jeff, he relives his life this way, and even though you know, he's aware that he died of a heart attack. So like even though he he exercises, takes care of himself to try and prevent that happening again. That same day that he died in 1988 rolls around again, and guess what? You know, heart attack. And you know, double guess what? He wakes up again in 1963, and now he's got two lives worth of memories. Oh shit! Yeah, hence the title, which is replay. Uh, so this, you know, it's a concept that's been—it's it, a concept that's been explored before, and it's done after too. And uh, you don't have to look too far, like uh, uh, Groundhog Day, the movie. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same sort of thing. And, you know, I didn't want to really spoil this book, but I don't feel bad about what I'm revealing because of a few things. Like, one, the plot twist is part of any synopsis you'll read, you know, anywhere you look. Mm -hmm. Two, it's implied by the novel's tagline. Like, what if you could live your life over again and again and again? Mm -hmm. Uh, And three, you know, it's in the back of the book and whatever. And despite knowing how it unfolds from there there's still some really good twists as he lives his life over and over again because you know he changes his goals he lives in many different ways it really explores like the vast amount of options a person has when they're 18 mm-hmm. and i mean it's kind of unfair to say that when he's got all this you know amazing foresight of what's going to happen <laughs> but um you know back to okay back to the thought experiment though so let's i was saying he lives his life in a bunch of different ways so what would you do to make the world a better place if you woke up in 2007? Like what, what could you try and prevent knowing that your either threats or your premonition might not be taken seriously? Cause that's what Jeff had to navigate. I feel like there's going to be something like Trump related where I'm going to start like really rallying hard <laughs> and people are going to be like, he's not going to become president. I'll be like, you don't understand. <laughs> yeah. um, You'd be the crazy scientist. Yeah. No, I mean, I like some of that stuff. Like art, isn't the lesson from all those though, that it's like inevitable. Like you're like, you, it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy if you're trying to like, you know, and, and what does one 18 year old from Connecticut do to make sure that, uh, that Trump doesn't get elected yeah. in, in 2016. Yeah. Hmm. You got to build your empire first and then you get the influence. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I have to so get my Bitcoins. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get all your Bitcoins together and then you can be like a, a lobbyist or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was thinking about this, you know, you could, there's a lot of stuff you could try and prevent, you know, some things you could try and stop like, you know, Virginia tech shooting was around that, that time. Mm-hmm. You could, uh, you could save Heath, Le- Heath Ledger. Maybe get a, reach out. Yeah, dude, you could start like partying and like in like the New York. Scene. <laughs> Try and get into that scene. Yeah, um, just be like, dude, no. <laughs> there's a, um, a lot of plane crashes you could try and stop. You know, some there's some. This would be hard, but there's a lot of there's a lot of major earthquakes, in Peru and China. 2007 2008 timeline are you gonna stop those you're gonna try to have people evacuate before them? i don't know well no <laughs> yeah you'd have to you have to pose as some kind of craze like size wait when does the when does the fukushima meltdown happen oh i'm getting to that um i i, I put that down that was uh 2011 i think I think okay, you could so absolutely got, like, prevent that. We've got like three or four years. Yeah, you could definitely prevent that. You could like go and like try to like, you know, just be like, listen to me. Like this thing is like, you know. <laughs> well, that one, that's less premonition and more pointing out like a real. Yeah. Risk, like, you, real yeah. Flaw. Like if you, yeah. if you knew the flaws, you could be like, dude, it's going to do this, this and this. And I'll be like, you're yeah. right. Don't put the backup generators in a spot that can flood you know? <laughs> <laughs> for react, like the reactor cooling generators were uh yeah even if you have a sea they had a seawall wasn't high enough they still kept the backup generators in the basement dumb uh you could 
what else you could do? You could um <laughs> this no one I don't no one died, but you could you could make it so that Sully Sullenberger wasn't a hero anymore. Uh, <laughs> you, could, like, <laughs> you just like take your revenge on Sully Sullenberger. Yeah, I didn't like that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick of this shit. Well, I yeah. mean, in replay, he does it so many times that you could kind of pick and choose what you want to prevent this time. Yeah. Um I, last thing I was thinking about for this, you know, it's kind of hard because you're still limited by who you are, you know, because yeah. like we were saying, it's like, like, I know, I know what swine flu is, but that literally does nothing to stop it. Like, yeah, <laughs> you would just be the one that ends up suggesting the name. You're like, I know what to call it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're going to call it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Enough of that. So. A little about the author Ken Grimwood. Normally, I would start with that, but I wanted to kind of jump into this thing. So he was an editor at an LA-based news radio station. I don't mm-hmm. know if it still exists. If you're listening to the radio in LA, um, but that I was in the 70s and do 80s. Do occasionally. Uh, KFWB 980 AM. You got to sing that. I think KFWB. Well, first of uh, all, I've never. I don't. I'm never on uh, the AM band. Oh. But KFWB does still exist. Yeah, KFWB nine eighty Los Angeles. Yeah, cool. Um, so you know he published some of his early fantasy novels when he was working there, but mm-hmm. um, he wasn't really successful until Replay came out. Then he was able to you know focus on writing full time. Uh, but he was a very introverted guy, not a really a public figure. He was a big movie buff apparently. Um, and a cr- cruel irony, he, he died of a heart attack in his home at the age of 59 while working on a sequel to Replay. Maybe like he's, maybe he is currently 19 or something like that. Yeah. You know, life imitating art. <laughs> um, but anyway, you know, I, en- I really enjoyed reading it. It was, it was a quick, very quick 300 pages. It's, I think it's just one of those books that it's going to vary what you take away from it. For me, it was really just entertaining and this kind of thought experiment kind of. But I can definitely see it, you know, being more of bringing up a more introspective look at the passage of time and regrets slash missed opportunities that come with that. Like, yeah, does he do stuff like? Does he go back and like, you know, pursue a girl more or like break up with someone or you know? Does oh he yeah, like get a ton stuff of like that. that. He lives. He lives a lot of lives, and um, I mean, there's there's more. There's like a big twist that that kind of changes the scenario and everything. Um, and yeah, he explores a lot of different things and some of his lives are incredible, like one, like one page long. Some of his lives are like very, very long. Um, oh, that's funny. Always, so he gets, so he like, he like gets reborn and then dies like the same day or whatever. No, no, he can't change any of that. But some, yeah. sometimes he'll just go, you know, this is what he did. And like, there wasn't yeah. too much to report on it, but it, it's still really cool. Like it's, it's a nice change of pace when that sort of stuff happens. Mm-hmm. He always learns something, you know, um, but yeah, for those, I don't know if you're if you're wondering, this is definitely not like hard sci-fi. Like if you're looking for a technical explanation of why this time traveling event is happening, like you're not going to get it. Yeah, it's just all uh, its experience. Yeah, yeah, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it's like life itself. You know, we're here and that's it. You got to live and that's that's what he does. It's just, you know, going through that experience. Yeah, like when you were first describing it, I thought you might before you said the title or the author or anything. I thought you might be talking about eleven twenty two sixty three. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I I really wonder if King had read this mm-hmm. book for sure for all of our many everything. for all of our listeners. That's eleven twenty two sixty three is a Stephen King book about a guy who's trying to prevent the assassination of JFK. Yeah, and it's an Amazon series, right? Yeah, and he keeps going back in time, like, over and over. Interesting. That's a good book, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, okay. One, la- one last thing, returning to the thought experiment, kind of being cryptic about the uh, twist in this book. But hmm. what would you have done differently yesterday? Let's say you just go back to yesterday. You got anything you would change? What would I have done differently yesterday? I would have Inve- left... invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I would no. I would have left my house sooner because I was driving to a job where I got there like just on time. But I would have rather have been there like thirty minutes early. Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, 
You ever uh, hear that? You ever hear the saying, if you're on time, you're 10 minutes late? Yeah. I, I don't buy the, like, set your watch differently because you just, you know, you know. Oh, no, yeah. You are, you're always <laughs> just like, oh, never mind. That's not the real time. Yeah. yeah and if anything, good. it's probably worse. Yeah. What would you do differently <laughs> from yesterday? Differently yesterday? I don't know. Maybe just have a different lunch or something. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, not a super satisfying lunch. That's it. That's all I got right now. <laughs> um, anyways, so that was Replay, Ken Grimwood, 1986. Check it out if you want something entertaining, some nice fantasy, sci-fi, uh, just a fun read. Nice. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So anyways, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter, at SBR, the podcast, no spaces. You can also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. You know, give us your comments, your suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling, just say hi, even that. Uh, All right, see you guys next time.